This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome, everybody, to our Design at Large on housing justice and urban design. I'm Mai Nguyen, director of the Design Lab, and I have the privilege and honor to co-host and moderate this wonderful panel with Karthik Ramakrishnan, the executive director of California 100. We have a really exciting group of what I'll call housers, people who are experts in housing, here to talk to us about this really complex and multifaceted issue of housing justice and the role that urban design plays in creating a more just housing system. Um, you know, for me, I'm a housing scholar, and when I think about housing, I think of it as a human right that everybody in our society should have access to housing. I also think about it as infrastructure, that we should be building, funding, maintaining housing as a part of our infrastructure so that we have a society that's thriving and individuals who can thrive. I also think about housing as health and health as housing. They are so interrelated and necessary uh, for one another, right? You can't disentangle housing from health and health outcomes. However, housing policy nationally, as well as in California, is a highly controversial political topic, right? It brings in issues and questions about property rights. It brings in questions about government overreach NIMBY attitudes, not in my backyard attitudes. It brings in um, all sorts of different issues related to power and privilege. So how can we get past this? And I, since I'm the director of the design lab, I have to bring in a little bit of design <laughs> into this, why we're here in the design lab uh, and talk and, and collaborating with California 100. The students have seen this slide before, um, designing, using design thinking and, and design methods to shape policy versus traditional methods. So it's more future-oriented, it's more um, creative, and we can think about prototyping solutions, right? But I want to get to the next slide because the students haven't seen this yet. How do we actually get systemic level design interventions, right? And this is where design thinking and, de and design comes into play is that, you know, we can think about different alternative futures, speculative futures, right? We've talked about this already. We can be provocative, imaginative. We should also be thinking about cross-sector possibilities that the people here that you see actually represent a number of different sectors. How can we work together really to think about all the possibilities whether they be symbolic or programmatic that we can change, how can we work together to change policy and lawmaking? And then, you know, the whole prototyping comes in, right? How can we make micro changes that actually are effective that then can have macro changes? So just give you an example. When Minneapolis said, we're going to get rid of all single-family zoning, 
I said, that's crazy. Who else is going to do this? And now it's actually a movement across the country. California passed SB9, which is essentially getting rid of single-family zoning, although they didn't call it that because that would be very political. Um, but, you know, th these small changes we can make in our own communities, in our own backyards, can actually have macro changes, right? So, but we got to think bold and big and audacious in order to do that. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Karthik to talk about how, uh, how this plays out in California and, and to set the stage for housing justice and design in California and to think about the next century um, because California 100 is about the next century. Thank you so much, Maya, and thank you, everybody. Um, so I'll say three things about California 100. I'll say a little bit about housing, but one of our uh, research team members is, is here who can say a, a bit more about the work that they did in terms of uh, scenario building. As, as Maya said, Professor Nguyen said, California 100, the 100 stands for 100 years. But there are other ways we can think about 100. How do we make California 100? Meaning, what does the ideal look like? What does perfection look like? What should be that vision of that ideal California when it comes in terms of housing for all? Just yesterday, uh, many of you may know Manuel Pastor, a dear friend and colleague, who thought of another way of thinking about 100 in terms of 100% coverage. How do we make sure that everyone is with us, right? Have, have that kind of inclusive view of California. I don't think Gen Z says keeping it 100 anymore. Sometimes it's about keeping it real and being real about the kinds of challenges we face even as we try to reach that ideal. We can also think about how we give California our 100. What is our civic obligation and duty to make sure that we do build a California for everyone? These are some of the ways we're playing around with the word 100. Another thing I want to say, and this tees up, well, it builds upon what my just laid out in terms of some of these micro steps. One of the ways that we piloted uh, a couple of questions in a survey that we did with advanced tech leaders was to, we didn't ask them about their vision of, a, of an ideal California, but we asked them two questions. What is one small yet meaningful step that can get us in the right direction? And then the other question was, what is something that is very difficult to achieve but is nevertheless worth trying today? That's one way that we can think about some of these enormous challenges that we face and to think about the ways that we can either chip away at it or accelerate some of those changes, including those that many would have thought impossible years ago or even months ago, but all of a sudden seem very possible and very likely. Final thing I'll say, and uh, I've mentioned this before, uh, we, we now have our uh, campus fellow program up and running We've already have one applicant from UCLA who's applied, no one yet from UC San Diego. So I hope by the end of today that someone is going to sign up. Check us out. We're building up a fellowship program in the fall and spring that will lead up to a youth manifesto that we'll deliver to the governor and various policymakers in Sacramento at the end of June. We have amazing advisors like Cecilia, a bunch of other commissioners, but we cannot talk about the future of California without people like you in the room today helping shape that future. So we hope you'll join us on that journey. Uh, we intend to have various campus manifestos in addition to a collective manifesto, not only involving UC, Cal State, and other campuses, but other youth-serving organizations throughout the state, including organizations that focus on Native youth, Pacific Islander youth, and the like.
So we hope you'll join us. Um, just to tee up a little bit about housing and the scenarios, uh, Dana Cuff from UCLA, I hope, Dana, that you'll say a little bit about this process as well. What you see here, and, and you can find this on our website, are artistic renderings of two-by-two two scenarios, two key dimensions that represent critical uncertainties. Both of those words are important. They have to be critical in terms of the issue at hand, and they have to have some degree of uncertainty. So it's either uh, neither 100% likelihood that that's going to happen, nor a 0% likelihood that we could find ourselves in that situation. The housing team produced a beautiful report. I encourage, well, I hope you all read uh, the issue report, uh, but uh, also the facts, origins, and trend books underlying it. Final thing I'll say, there's so many issues we have in California 100, and you can look at the interrelationships among several of them. What we have found time and again, including in our advanced tech report, the survey that we did with leaders at advanced technology, is that California will not be viable as a state, nor will it be a state of innovation or inclusion if we do not solve our housing problem. There's just no way around it, including... We just had a, an event at USC yesterday on immigrant integration. We think of ourselves as an immigrant-friendly state, but with housing so unaffordable, it's unclear that we can call ourselves an immigrant-friendly state anymore. And the list goes on. There's so many connections to climate and so many other issues that we care about. Really excited about the conversation today. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we're going to solve all the problems, but hopefully we'll start making some headway in terms of those small steps and big steps. Thank you. So, Cecilia, I'm going to start with you. Um, Cecilia is a leading urban planner and land use and environmental lawyer. She's worked with all different levels of government where she settled um, major lawsuits like the Clean Water Act litigation and led the largest redevelopment agency in the nation. She's also served on many boards, too many to actually name here, so she's really a servant leader. But notably, she was the former chair of the UC Board of Regents. So it seems like the law of demand and supply should be real simple, right? There's, <laughs> there's this incredible demand for housing, right? And why doesn't the capitalist market solve that, d that demand, right, with supply? Yet in, in this country, we have an undersupply of housing to the extent of over 3 million units, according to Freddie Mac, Right, and in California, we also have an undersupply of housing, pretty much in every every major metropolitan area. So, why can't we build ourselves out of this problem? What are the major challenges to supplying housing? Right. Well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to this forum. Um, it's a wonderful place to be. It's a beautiful facility, and this is a great class. So, here we go. So, if you think about the barriers to housing production, specifically in California. I'm going to answer it that way since this is the California 100. Number one is local land use and regulatory barriers, right? Zoning, downzoning, exclusionary zoning, I can name them all. If you've read the report, you know what I'm talking about. It makes it very difficult for builders to have certainty. It draws out the entitlement process, which costs money. It also does something else, which implicates what everybody likes to talk about, CEQA. They blame everything on the California Environmental Quality Act. But what it says is there aren't by right abilities. You can't just go pull a permit to build housing. You have to go through a discretionary review process, which means you have to have a CEQA document. Now, we've carved out some exceptions over the years if we tried to uh, approach this. But it still means that things like, hmm, 
if UC Berkeley wants to build student housing, they get sued under CEQA, and then they're not allowed to build any housing, including housing for the homeless. And guess what gets worse is the housing crisis in a university town. So first, we got to look at zoning requirements, right? It makes it really difficult to do things uh, at density, at scale, uh, causes you know, delays in, in development, and increased costs. Related to that, though, is also we have Proposition 13. I'm just going to throw it out there. It's related in a few ways. One is because of Proposition 13, there are actually incentives for cities to allow housing to be built because housing doesn't pay for itself. It's not generating sales tax and filling city coffers, okay? The other thing about Proposition 13 is it locks into place people just don't move. In fact, Josh Stevens at the California Development and Planning Report just yesterday cited a Redfin report that noted that Los Angeles... The average tenure of a homeowner in Los Angeles, they stay in their house 18.1 years. It's the most static housing ownership market in the country. Uh, San Jose and San Francisco are not far behind. Um, That contrasts to 13.4 for the rest of the country. We're not moving anymore. Why? Because we can't afford to. Because all of the tax incentives have us locked in place. So people aren't downsizing. They're not turning over the inventory, right? That's another field. And I can go on and on about Prop 13, why it bakes in place people's desire to have NIMBY tendencies. Because to me, when you talk about land use control and regulation, that's really about NIMBYism because local governments are the most responsive to their constituents couple more and then I'll stop. There's also just, we're also not making more land, right? Supply and demand holds, but we're not, we can't make more land. And we're dealing with a climate crisis. So we don't have limitless supplies of land and we can't just go in and continue to build in the urban wildlands interface because we could build tomorrow, but then the next year it can all be burned down with a wildfire. We know what that's like. We lived through it the last several summers. So there are real environmental constraints on how much land we can gobble up to build housing. The last thing I think that is really the impediment, you talked about market. Housing is a public good. What I loved about your report, Karthik or Dana, I guess, is that it like, went beyond what we live in now. Why can't we think of housing as a public good just as we do about education and health care and food? It's a basic right. We can provide for this basic right. We can do things, and I know we're going to have another question about how to address it, but like Vienna, you don't really think of that as a radical socialist communist place, right? Um, They have all kinds of social housing. 60% of the people in Vienna, middle class people, all kinds of incomes, live in housing that's owned by the government. Quality housing. We need to think beyond the market if we want to address this program, this problem, and we have to think about new ways of envisioning housing. These are not radical ways. It's just not the way we've done it for the last, I don't know, 70 years. doesn't mean that it can't be done. So those are the big impediments. Yeah. Thank you. And if you don't know about Prop 13 and how that's impacted our state, make sure that you look it up, students. So I'm going to turn to Dana, professor of architecture. Her work focuses on affordable housing, modernism, suburban studies, and the politics of place. She founded City Lab at UCLA in 2006 and has really concentrated her work on spatial justice um, in emerging metropolises. She has an impressive array of awards, which just shows that she's uh, an activist, a scholar, as well as an award-winning educator. Um, so just really impressive work. So Dana, let's, let's talk about housing and urban design since you're an architect. 
and um, the elimination of, of single-family zoning, right? There's this movement uh, across the country. Minneapolis started it. Then the state of Oregon actually passed statewide elimination of single-family zoning. California. Is that, is that going to actually produce more affordable housing? Thanks. Uh, and like Cecilia, it's really an honor to be here and with this panel. And I feel like I was queued up by Cecilia to talk about these things. So, yeah, there's the single family zone that still captures our imaginary. It's like Levittown. Like, who has a family that belongs in a 700 square foot house anymore? None of us. Uh, the most common size of household is a single person. So our housing stock is completely out of whack with our population. So let's just look at a couple. I only brought three slides. Um, so uh, my referred to SB9. Actually, the first undoing of the single-family zone here in California was 2299, a bill that I co-authored after 10 years of research at CityLab to undo the single-family zone. We were hoping in Los Angeles, but because we couldn't get past NIMBY work at the local level, uh, Assemblyman Bloom and uh, a number of us activists and researchers took it to the state, and we got that first uh, chip away at the single-family zone. So now every house, in a, almost every house, in the single-family zone can actually have two houses. That's already doubling the density. And when I started talking about that, people talked to me about Manhattanizing California, <laughs> which is so ironic. But it was because it's so far from what Californians, whoever that mythical California might be, imagined their state's greatest resource was the single-family zone. Now I'm really pleased that AB 2299 has evolved to having four units per lot, and you can actually subdivide the lots. And my asked, so, so you can have one lot can become two lots, reducing the cost of the land, which is the greatest cost in most cities of a cost of a house, and on each one of those units you can have two. Maya asked whether this is actually a port, uh, providing affordable housing, and the data is mixed about that, though the cost per square foot for renting ADUs, accessory dwelling units, or what we call backyard homes, is lower than apartment and house rentals in general. It's not as low as we expected when we wrote the legislation. And as a result of that, I'll show you some things that we've been doing since. Uh, yeah, so this is what we're, we did with uh, Cal 100, which was a wonderful opportunity to work with my colleagues at Berkeley and at my, the planning school to try to figure out what the scenarios for California might be. And the scenarios that were described as high production, can we build our way out of it? Or what happens if we have low production like we do now? The governor says we need 2.5 million units in the next eight years. That's profound production. No, no indication that that's possible. Um, but if you're in this business, you have to be an optimist. Um, so how do we get somewhere on that measure? The other continuum is housing for social equity or public good or as a human right. And what's opposed to that is housing for private gain, meaning housing for exchange, investment, and for capital growth. And we know now that we have excluded racially primarily black households, but households of color 
throughout the history of housing production. So already the tendency of moving toward housing for private gain has a deep inequities built in, which is part of this complex that means we have to be thinking about both building our way out and uh, building for public good. I think the thing that we discovered in the research we did is that in the upper right corner, housing for all, where really I think everyone thinks we should end up, is going to be a very difficult goal to achieve, both high production and a value that's held on social equity in housing. And where we're headed, which wasn't so clear to me until after we'd gone through all of the research, is towards this lower left, which we called new feudalisms, meaning low production and housing as an investment. And this is why we see luxury towers with people who are unhoused living in their courtyards. And that's really not a future any of us want. So of the many ways that Cecilia was talking about, uh, the, you know, sort of analyzing the problems of how we work our way out of it, it's going to take a multifactored strategy. There's not a silver bullet in this. Uh, so last slide. Um, I just want to show you what we've done at City Lab with our partners up at the Turner Center in Berkeley to try to address the affordability question that we l couldn't succeed at in the Backyard Homes Project because we couldn't guarantee how much people would charge for rent. Um, but we are working on this problem of sprawl that we want to build inside the city, which is where I think architects really have muscle. Like, that's where it takes design talent to show how to do it well, um, much more so than if you have a big green field and you can just build, you know, extensively in any manner. When you're fitting it into the cracks, that's a tricky design problem also. So how could we guarantee affordability in an infill site we realized that there were 150,000 acres of public school land, K through 12, throughout California. And doing a sophisticated analysis, 80,000 of those acres are actually potentially developable, meaning there's not an active school use on them. And they are in an area where affordability is needed. So tomorrow is our last committee um, passage at, at the state level. I think. I don't know if I should say this out loud because it might jinx it, but we're going to pass another piece of legislation to make building on school land far more possible. Um, right now, there are four developments total on school land. They all have long waiting lists. This is for teachers, janitors, secretaries, um, and then next for other public employees who are in the workforce affordability categories. And I'm very optimistic. We, we've guaranteed that each development that happens on this publicly held land will stay in the um, public sector for 55 years and stay affordable for at least that long. So little by little, uh, you know, spot by spot, we start to address this affordability issue by making it more possible to build affordable housing. Thanks. What a great example of how micro changes can have macro, yeah. right, changes. Um, so I'm going to turn to Anu and um, and and we'll get to the question in a minute, but Anu is the first Indian American to be elected to a city council in the Bay Area. And she served as the director of policy and advocacy for Midpen Housing. She's really a coalition builder, uh, bringing together more than 35 partners in the Bay Area to solve regional challenges. And this is 
probably why Facebook hired her to um, actually implement their housing program. Um, so she currently serves as the housing lead at Facebook, or now called Meta. Um, so in 2019, Meta dedicated a billion dollars towards affordable housing. And this is um, to address California's severe housing crunch and produce something like 20,000 housing units. How are you doing? Are you, have you produced those units? <laughs> and, and why did Facebook get involved in this? So let me just start by saying it's a 10-year initiative, and we are in the second year of our 10 years. <laughs> um, so why did Facebook get into this? Um, I think the skeptics will push back and say it's public relations philanthropy, uh, that that tech, in fact, created this housing crisis, and so they should be involved. I see a lot of people nodding here, and they should be involved in, in providing solutions. Um, tech did not create this mess. I think it's 40-plus years of really bad policy, um, and, and the way we've used our uh, land really poorly by creating these single-family homes and tons of land for our cars and for driving our cars. Um, so we, we focus more on housing our cars than we do people. Um, but Facebook, um, in expanding its uh, headquarters in Menlo Park, recognized the housing crisis, recognized that it couldn't attract and retain employees, and that housing was impacting not just the extremely low income, but even the tech workers with double income, so it was across the board uh, at all income levels. So when they pitched the billion dollars, and uh, several other high-tech companies did too, um, Facebook said that was to facilitate production, as you said, Mai, of 20,000 units of housing. We understand that, that it's critically important to be looking at protection and preservation as well, but we were singularly focused on undersupply of housing as being foundational to this housing crisis, and so our focus was going to be on production of units. Um, the one thing I will say before I tell you how the fund is doing is that in addition to the billion-dollar fund, Facebook also created a policy reform fund of $100 million, um, and that is to really facilitate changes um, at the, the legislative state level but also implement a lot of the policies that have already been um, law and haven't filtered down to the local levels. And so the way I look at that public reform, public policy reform, policy implementation is really creating that awareness of what the policies do and don't do and the intended and unintended consequences of doing it or not doing it, plus creating this robust civic infrastructure, which includes a data infrastructure, creating partnerships of non-traditional folks that typically don't come together, bridging um, silos and bringing uh, people that really are not at the table at the same time that should be, um, and creating these ambassadors of housing that really understand the intersections, as you said, between housing, between mobility, equity, and the climate. And so that's what uh, differentiates Facebook's work from a lot of the uh, other tech investments is that, that policy reform and hiring a dedicated housing team to work with partners, to work with research teams, to really get to the, the crux of the problem and use its platform to convey the message about the crisis um, and, and, and the fact that it's not all doom and gloom, that there are things that are being done incrementally to make the changes that we need. So to get back to your question, um, 
the hundred the, the billion dollars we launched a first tranche of hundred mil, 150 million dollars for uh, uh, extremely low income uh, units so this was called the community housing fund and the criteria was that at least 20 percent of the units needed to be dedicated to extremely low income families so the good news is we funded 13 different projects which will produce over 1700 units of housing um, and over 49% of them are for extremely low-income families. So that, that fund is doing really well. Um, it, it's being used for acquisition and gap financing for pre-development, so it's coming back to us sooner than we had anticipated. So the idea of recycling those funds and enabling production of more units of housing is, is really going strong. We also did a uh, public-private partnership for teacher housing, building on what Dana said, um, working with the County of Santa Clara on their land uh, with modular construction. And, and we're taking a look at that as a case study to see what the impacts are, both on the schedule, the timeline, the processing, and um, the overall cost of the project. So we should have a sense of what that looks like uh, within the next year or so. So the, the, the fund that we want to launch at the end of this year is our missing middle fund on public lands. Um, and that's, to me, the most exciting thing and the most challenging um, of, of the funds that we want to set out there. It's $250 million. Um, missing middle, as we define it, is for folks that, that make too much money uh, to qualify for subsidized housing and don't make enough to afford market rate housing. And that's a whole spectrum of folks within a whole lot of professions. And that median income of between 80 and 120% of um, average median income changes from place to place, even within the Bay Area. It's different in San Francisco than it is um, in a smaller community. And so we're really tackling what that looks like, who builds in that space, what the finance structure needs to be, um, and, and are exploring that option now um, as joint ventures, um, working on public lands. And both of you talked about the use of land more um, impactfully, more uh, effectively. And I think unlocking land and, and looking at public lands that have not been used as effectively is one way to get more land and to be building more housing units. So that's part of our fund. And um, one last thing I'll say is we're also looking at innovation in construction technology. We are looking at modular. We've invested in factory OS. Uh, but really looking to see how we change construction and the practices today so we can build faster, cheaper, quicker, and more equitably. Thank you. And we need to change our regulations so we can actually bring in modular housing. Right? Um, and it makes me think that you know, you've talked about different levels of uh, income and that we need affordable housing at all different income levels, right? Very low income, moderate income. And the typical definition of affordable housing is if you pay 30% or less on your housing. So I'm going to turn to Stephen. Stephen Russell is the, currently the president and CEO of the San Diego Housing Federation. He has a 20-year working history uh, on working on community and economic development in the mid-city region of San Diego. And he was an advisor to the then San Diego City Council member, Tony Atkins, on issues related to redevelopment, infrastructure financing, small business support, and, and the city's general plan. Stephen, 
Um, you work at a nonprofit. Why do we need the nonprofit sector involved in affordable housing? Shouldn't government be our safety net? Shouldn't uh, government be providing housing for, for its population? Well, indirectly, they do through the nonprofit sector. I mean, the history of how we got to having nonprofits doing affordable housing is that uh, the Reagan tax reform in 1987, they wanted to offload as many expenditures as possible off the public, out of, not, not in, out of the public treasury, but out of private capital. And so they offer tax credits to do that. Um, the nonprofit sector in general in America, not just in housing, but really it fulfills a really essential role where uh, more social, socialist governments typically fulfill lots of roles, whether it be health care, child care, uh, housing. And in America, we leave a lot of that to the nonprofit sector because, A, we like to keep our taxes low, and, B, we're not going to have government telling us what to do. So um, the nonprofit sector really brings uh, some essential creativity. It is a change from when you look at the policies that were funded heavily by the federal government back uh, urban renewal and the free highway system, both of which were ways of destroying communities of color across this country, uh, that was kind of top-down planning. And so one of the things that has really been an emphasis in uh, affordable housing and community and economic development, which is, which is kind of the response to urban renewal, is work with the community, build from the ground up, be responsive to the community, and that's something that the nonprofits are able to do in a way that no one else can. Um, and I think it's also important that, you know, I've, I've been really proud to be a board member of the City Heights Community Development Corporation for a decade, up until about five years ago. And one of the things, we picked up a, a, a promise that had been made 20 years earlier to that organization um, about how a freeway was being built through this community. Uh, we went through successive uh, electeds, electeds climbed and disappeared, uh, people in the community came and went, the organization stayed. And so that, that was the keeper. That was, I think, one of the most important roles that a nonprofit can play at a community level is to be a keeper of promises uh, that are made by other government entities or, or, you know, amongst other parties. And so we were able to implement, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, rapid transit because we could keep these promises. Uh, the nimbleness is important. I think you know the, the folks who are drawn to affordable housing are mission driven. Excuse me, mission driven, and the nonprofit sector provides a setting where that is possible. Uh, it also, uh, to a limited extent, creates a possibility for philanthropy to play a role. Uh, by and large, uh, the nonprofits doing housing are actually generating their own income from the projects they're doing, but there are opportunities for um, uh, for philanthropy as well. Uh, the mission, again, you know, it's not just about providing uh, affordable housing. It is about economic development. That is creating opportunities for people to have more wealth. Uh, there's a large discussion right now about, about class division, and a lot of that in this current age has more to do with asset-based wealth versus labor-based uh, wealth. And what you're seeing is that, that uh, assets are appreciating at such a rapid pace, far outpacing wage growth, that if you are fortunate enough to have some asset wealth, and largely for most people that asset is housing, um, that the gap, the chasm between being a wage earner and trying to get assets that then generate revenue faster than your wages grow, uh, it's, it's an un unbridgeable gap. And so, you know, there's a need where the market hasn't functioned properly or hasn't functioned to the benefit of society that the nonprofits step in there and try to see if we can bridge some of that gap. I want to take a privilege to maybe offer a comment that builds upon what we've seen in, in prior um, issue areas that we've hosted here. And it seems to me very resonant. Some of these things came up in transportation, but in other areas as well. First, I would say this notion of both and. Right? Often we set things up as either or. And actually, so one comment I'll make, uh, Anu, I, I would say some of the research we've done on the tech side 
shows where tech can be part of a housing solution in a different way. And this relates to transportation. I remember Norm Mineta wrote an op-ed in the Mercury News talking about the need for high-speed rail to get people from affordable housing in Fresno quickly to San Jose. That's trying to bring people to the jobs. How about bringing jobs to the people? And especially when we have a wonderful University of California system and Cal State system that other states would kill for the kinds of assets we have where we can grow technology. And it's not just about the Bay Area and Fresno. We have Amazon Studios in the west side of L.A. We have Amazon doing a whole bunch of other things in the Inland Empire. We have amazing creatives where we are. We have innovators throughout California. Why can't we have the promise of tech spread to where people of color live? Amazing innovators of color live, rather than everyone piling up in two or three concentrated areas. So that's where a both-and strategy makes sense, and it's not just for tech alone. This is where a state could make strategic investments. Another theme that came up on the transportation side, and Cecilia, when you, it was really powerful the way you talked about how Prop 13 is actually trapping people in place. And this notion, Maya, this notion of choice and increasing choices. We talked about that in terms of alternative transportation choices as not taking things away, but actually liberating people to try different things. So that's what I want to drill in on for anyone who wants to take this question is Prop 13 reform for all sorts of reasons. It is a third rail in California policy, and it's just very, very difficult uh, to change as it involves property tax itself. There are other aspects of Prop 13 that have been tinkered with. But how do we get this mindset shift, even if we're not tackling Prop 13? Dana, you've talked about it a little bit, but this, there's just this deep mindset that the single-family home with a green lawn is what is beautiful and desirable. And we've had decades of entertainment and other messages that have just held that in place. How are we going to create new standards of beauty and the California dream that will actually take hold uh, among a new generation of Californians? Because it seems like that's ultimately what we need to do to kind of break out of the traps that we've set for ourselves. So I, I have two consulting firms with a lot of folks in their 20s and 30s, all of whom have given up any hope of owning a home. And these are professionals. They'll have master's degrees in urban planning or public policy from UCs and other institutions. Their vision of the good life is about access to nature, access to high-quality transit, public transit, um, working in a place that's close to cultural institutions, interesting, cool places to eat. They've given up hope of owning a home. They just want to live someplace that's safe, interesting, pretty, access to nature. I mean, that's a short version of it, but it's interesting. They also are very climate aware. Living in Los Angeles, it's hard not to be. Um, so I think the question of how do we redefine, it's already being redefined. We need to break out of what were the 1950s aspects. Those of us who weren't even born in the 50s don't need to be building for somebody else's aspirations. We need to be talking to the folks in this room and understanding their aspirations and building to that, creating the choices you're talking about, Karthik. Because maybe there are different models. What, um, uh, the, the, the four plex that you were doing, I mean, 
those villages that are a little bit more dense, where folks can interact more interestingly, where there are town squares, where people actually relate to each other. I've got to imagine that might have some appeal to people in their teens and 20s who've been holed up in their parents' houses for two years. So I, I do feel like we need to go beyond what the previous generation articulated as the California or the American dream to something that's more expansive with many, many, many more options, keeping in mind what makes California great. That's what you talked about. We collect the best and the brightest from all over the world, but if we can't do that anymore, then we're kind of like Detroit in the 1990s. Being on city council and sitting at these meetings for 10 years every Tuesday and having folks come and push back on any kind of change um, really had me go to high schools and talk to students about what it is that they wanted. Um, I call myself an urbanist but live in a very suburban city. And when talking to these high school students, I mean, they'd say, oh, we want single-family homes. We do not want public transit. And you ask them why, it's because that's what their parents are saying. Then they go off to school and then refuse to come back to Fremont because it's too suburban. Um, so I think, to your point, um, we need to be showcasing different prototypes um, in, in what I call life cycle housing. Mm. Each of us in our own lifetimes just don't live in a single-family home. There's several different prototypes of housing that we live in. And we need to be talking about it in those terms instead of, as planners, talking about it with density and number of units per acre, which people really don't understand. When you don't understand something, you're going to not want any kind of change in your community. And the other thing that we're doing with Meta is to do a, a Hearts and Minds campaign um, for housing, but really looking at a social media campaign and targeting this generation, right? And, and to look at how you get your messages, um, TikTok, uh, Reels, and, and not Facebook for sure. <laughs> um, we know that. Um, and, and really start looking at not simply the message, but who the messengers are that are talking to you. And so we, we're launching on doing that for the next three years because we, we know that 2024 is going to be a huge year in terms of ballot measures. And, and we want to get people really prepared and, and understand the implications of what we don't do and, and what the impact is. And I, I'll go back to California becoming Detroit. So, yeah. There was a study recently that showed the most popular suburbs were the most urban ones. Uh -huh. It was this weird contradiction that if you could find walkability, you know, which now is a metric in a suburb, that's where people most wanted to live, which I think goes to the point that it's already undermined. And to me, it goes along with the um, misconception that suburbs are greener, meaning more sustainable than cities, whereas the most sustainable settlement pattern is Manhattan, basically, for all kinds of reasons. So... As we watch the next generation pushing for goals of sustainability and community, I think w what's wrong is that we've sort of locked ourselves into what is a complex of lending, zoning, and uh, development standards that no longer apply. So the more options we get and the more we make visible the options that people are already living. <laughs> so the fact that we've carved secondary units out of big houses 
might still look like a single family house, but in fact, it's not. The fact that we're living in extended families might look like a single family house, but it's not. So there are many ways in which I think we need to make the visibility of our choices and and make an opportunity structure that fits what we want to do in our lives, not just what's fed to us by older institutions that have a very difficult time changing. So I don't even blame your parents. Uh, I really blame, uh, you know, the development, banking, and institutional structure that makes change so complicated. The ubiquity and, uh, and of the typology of the single-family home is not by accident, right? It was a series of conscious decisions by the banking industry, by lending, by federal policy, very exclusionary in its design. And they created the American dream. The notion that this was the American dream is something that, you know, they, they sold. And so they, they aligned all of these resources. I say they. It's, it, was, it was the former us. Um, that uh, this typology of something was supported by this massive uh, infrastructure of, of laws and lending, we need to look at what kinds of infrastructure, what kind of typologies do we want, and can we create a similar infrastructure around that? I mean, can we lend in different ways? Can we own property in common in different ways? How much housing does one need? And if your housing need changes, do you need to move, or can you reconfigure the space, right? So we need to, I think, investigate all of these things, especially if we do want to get to a point where folks can, in fact, buy in. And I, I do believe there's a big role for social housing. I, I wouldn't be doing what I do in affordable housing if I didn't believe in social housing. But I also recognize that the scale of what we need to do requires private capital to flow in. We need a lot of private capital, and that means people owning. And if we can get folks to get into the asset class by having different, I mean, right now, building condominiums is almost impossible in California because of construction defect law. It makes the liability so high that people choose to build apartments, they'll rent them for 10 years, and I think we'll have a flood of condos coming on the market, all these apartments, when they hit the 10-year magic mark. But we need to find other typologies that we can build in great numbers, and by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands that are suitable for some kind of equity participation. And I don't want to say ownership, because I think that's the thing what we're stuck in, is this idea that my home, my castle, there's, there are cooperatives, there are limited equity uh, sort of situations, there are land trusts, there are all kinds of ways. And very much so, the financial structures of, that surround us are expressed through the buildings that we build. So let's create the financial system that we need to produce the kind of housing that we, we need as well. So there's, there's, it's... It's a big I, picture. I, I want to jump on that because that is exactly where we need to go. Because we talk about typologies, it's it, this is a generation that's open to different forms of ownership, of capital, of engagement, and we should take advantage of it. They don't have any particular attachment to capitalism because capitalism hasn't done them very well. So this is an opportunity to talk. When you talk about you know ticks or you know d- different types of ownership structures, this is a generation in their twenties and thirties that are coming up with land trusts, community land trusts, and just not saying no. They're coming up with cooperatives. And, you know, many of us in economic development said, oh, that doesn't work. We tried it a million times. They're like, well, why not? They just are going for it, right? Uh, The tenant ownership opportunities, which I think those of us who grew up in the Reagan 80s thought, oh, that's never going to happen. That's what's going on now. This generation is rejecting those sense of of the, the constraints and are open to possibilities. So it all goes back to choice, right? Let's take advantage of the fact that their minds are open, even if ours aren't. Yeah, those are some great points. And just um, bringing up that there are lots of different models for ownership, land ownership, housing ownership, um, that 
you know, that exists, but we just haven't given the opportunities for people to actually engage in those types of ownership models. Um, I'm going to open it up to the audience here. So I know, I know you probably have some great questions, but I'm going to take one from Zoom first. Um, this one comes from Yu Xiao Ding, and it's related to the D word, density. In California, we tend to not like density, but it seems to be, according to Yu Xiao, um, you know, how we're going to actually build ourselves out of this, right? So how can we get more communities, particularly suburban communities, to actually accept higher density housing? I think Anu should answer that question because you're right. Stop talking about density and FAR, I, you know. Or, I, I agree. Um, so there was a, uh, I believe it was Silicon Valley at home that did an analysis. They just posted pictures of different kinds of housing projects and said, guess the density. Yes. <laughs> Nobody could. Right, yeah. uh, because you can have a four-story building from 36 units to an acre to 300 units per acre. So density as um, something that people can relate to should just be avoided. Density is a dirty word. And so we need to really be talking about typologies and, and having people take a look at what those different ways of uh, describing where we live is and, and just really get away from floor area ratios and, and densities um, because that's for planners. That's for environmental impact report writers, but nobody else in terms of what it does. And so... Um, to get back to your point, I think um, what Dana said was so true. I mean, you, you had, I mean, you walk around in Berkeley and other older cities, you've had these fourplexes and duplexes, which you don't even know are fourplexes. And that's the model that we want to revert to is just take the single family home and divide it up so there's more than one family that can live there and use the, the spaces more efficiently. It turns out there's eight. 0.1 million single-family homes in the state of California, which isn't quite as many as you'd think, actually. But if you doubled the density of that, you would have exceeded the governor's goal in three, you know, three times over. So density can mean anything from living in a high... Well, look at the dorms, for instance. No one minds living... Mm. I don't know if I should say no one. We should open that up there for questions. There are good dorms and bad dorms, I would say. The new ones here have amazing <laughs> amenities. Yeah, but there are dorms that work perfectly while you're a student and might work well when you're older. And this goes back to something I think you said, Mai, about stages in life, or maybe it was you, Anu. Um, so that we have this kind of one-size-fits-all model and that that's the density we want to live in seems crazy, really, since we all go through so many changes in our lives. Any audience questions? Ah, I'm going to take one from a student here. Um, so my question is, how has Meta thought about how virtual reality will affect housing and building design and how we will interact with uh, the, our buildings? So, you know, what's interesting is when I look at the design and, and the themes in the metaverse, they appear so suburban to me. Um, and it's because it's being created by folks that live in suburbia. Uh, and so to me, it's like, okay, we need to open this discussion up. And so we're having these conversations about a different way of living, not just in real life, but in metaverse too. Um, I don't have the answer to your question. Um, I, uh, I think there's a lot of 
intersection between uh, what we're doing now in terms of working remotely and being connected, um, but it's still not going to res resolve the meeting in person, the need for having collective uh, workspaces, living spaces. And so I don't know where that's leading. So I'll leave it to you guys to figure that out. I'm going to introduce Ted Parzin, CEO of the Burnham Center, and ask him what the Burnham Center is doing about housing in San Diego. Oh, we fixed it already, didn't you know? So, yeah, it's done. So um, we keep getting We've been open for all of three months, and we keep getting asked, why isn't it done? And I think this, this conversation exemplifies why not. But I, I have to say, Maya and Karthik, it's, it's just thrilling to be your partner in, in these conversations because, um, number one, I come away a little smarter, a little humbler, and a little smarter every time I hear from your panel and uh, a little more energized and hopeful when I see the engagement and the light bulbs going off for all the younger people in, in, the, in the room. It's really a treat. So thank you for the opportunity to partner with, with both of you. Uh, so the Burnham Center is a new think-and-do tank. We call it a regional think-and-do tank where big ideas come to happen. And we are in search of ideas like are being floated here, and I'm delighted to be with fellow doers today because, uh, you know, there's one thing to have big ideas. We have a couple sayings. One, good ideas aren't enough. We've got to act on them, so thank you for your examples of, of doing that, all of you. And, and two, together we can uh, – sorry, I get a little choked up when I talk about this. Together we can do anything. There's, no, there's nothing stopping us but – inertia and with your energy and wonderful leadership and ideas like we're hearing today uh, we can get this done so in terms of what we're doing is we are collecting currently ideas like we're hearing today one of the specifics that we're talking about is is a multi-use uh, echo um, sorry I'm losing my train of thought it's a carbon neutral multi-use development concept that includes workplaces, so bringing work to, to the residents, creating a carbon neutral system that actually generates its own energy, and multi-unit housing that, uh, without using the D word, it, you're able to create entire communities in small, smaller spaces where there's something interesting to do, there are interesting places to eat, you have your livelihood is nearby, all those things come true. So we're starting to have those conversations, we're starting to convene, and thank you, I, I'm very surprised to hear how aligned we are with Facebook and Meta on, on this. I'm delighted to hear of all the things you're doing about bringing people together to solve for these issues. Very similarly, we're building cross-sector collaborations around this issue, the, all of these issues that you are discussing in these conversations to ideate, organize, prioritize, and then act. So it's the act part that we'd like to bring to life regionally. We have only been up, been, been up and running for three or four months, although we've been working with my and Design Lab now for, for since we opened our doors. So, so um, we're delighted to be here and be a part of this conversation and uh, continue to foster these, help germinate these ideas and bring them to life for, for our region here in San Diego. And thank you to everybody. We look forward to seeing you down at Park and Market, which is the new UCSD building downtown. We are uh, the, the first tenant down there, and I'm lucky to have Mai as my neighbor. So come on down, and we'll talk about all this stuff and start getting it done.
Great, thank you. Karthik, do you have a call to action that you would like to share? No, I mean, I think we've, uh, first of all, Dana, just hearing about, I mean, Dana's got the calls to action. I mean, there's a, there's a bill that's coming out of committee, and maybe maybe get in touch with your your yeah. legislators. There's an immediate yeah. call there. Come to UCLA. But, uh, <laughs> but, but beyond that, I mean, I think we've heard so many um, ideas that are actionable and that are being implemented right away, uh, but maybe two or three years away. Uh, and it does take political will, but it, it, political will doesn't have to seem so distant. Uh, I think it is within reach and it's within our power to, uh, to do it. So just really grateful. Mine. I, I guess I'll just reiterate is we have to solve this problem. California lost a congressional seat for the first time in its history due in part to unaffordable housing. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe we do see a future where bigger is not better and where we will enter a slow population uh, decline, at least in terms of our share of the country. So it's not necessarily the end of the world or the end of California to continue to lose congressional seats. But what it does mean is that there are many people who have been pushed out of California including low-income and middle-income folks, um, immigrants. So many people that we think of essential to this new California that is inclusive and equitable, there's absolutely no way we get there without making housing plentiful, safe, all the kinds of qualities that Cecilia and others have been rattling off. That's the ideal vision that we need to actualize, and we need to get to work. So let's do it. And I think that just to wrap up, you know, we created this nation under these policies of separate but equal, right, Plessy versus Ferguson in in the 1800s, and then built on layers and layers, centuries of discriminatory housing practices. And that was through public policy. It was through laws, through practices. And now for the next 100 years, we have to dismantle that. And that's going to take bold action. That's going to take all of us, all of you here. You're the future. So whatever industry you work in, whatever sector you work in, wherever you live, become engaged, learn about housing policy and the history of housing policy, and take action because we're going to need it in order to fix 100 or more years of baked-in policies that if we just let things happen, the status quo, we will continue to segregate, we will continue to discriminate, and income inequality, wealth inequality will just continue to exasperate because much of our wealth is tied into our housing um, today. So um, thank you all for being here. This is a wonderful conversation. It makes my heart sing since I'm a housing scholar. So, uh, But it also ties into things that we've talked about in the last few weeks, right? Climate change, transportation. Housing is the bedrock. It's the foundation, and it's the connector to all these other systems. And everybody in our societies should have access to, to decent, affordable housing. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.